Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. Today is another AMA episode, that is, Ask Me Anything. I love to answer your questions, and if you have a question you think is going to be a broad interest, send it in. I'll answer it live on the air. Send your questions to victor at victorjm.com. That's victor at victorjm.com. Today's question comes from Mike, who asks, Hi, Victor, I listen to your great podcast a lot, and I notice that you and your company do a lot of development, which obviously affects and impacts the world's environment that we all share. You seem like a practical and good person, so I'm wondering what you do and what your company does to make sure your projects are sustainable and not just hurting the environment. Well, Mike, thanks for the kind words, and this is a great question. It's also a difficult question to answer in a comprehensive way in just a few minutes. There are a few things that a development company can do that directly helps mitigate environmental impact, and then there are things you can do indirectly. When you segment the question further, there are things that you can do where there's just a one-time benefit, and then there are things where there's a recurring impact. So let's look at each one independently. Let's start with the construction process. Construction sites can be messy, and when it rains, there's a possibility of stormwater runoff from the construction site causing contamination. The EPA requires all builders to implement what's called a Stormwater Pollution Prevention Plan, or SWPPP for short. That means installing silt fencing to make sure you don't have runoff contaminating the water supply. You also got to make sure you secure materials that could be taken by the wind or float away. Securing your construction site is a critical component in making sure that you're not polluting the environment. Now, virtually all new construction can be seen as having a potential negative impact on the environment. Many materials are made of plastic, which is a petroleum product. Laminated products use adhesives that can produce toxic gases. Concrete uses Portland cement as a binder. And the chemical reaction produces carbon dioxide and heat as a byproduct. Individually, Each concrete slab and each concrete block and each concrete foundation doesn't seem that bad, but in aggregate, the world uses so much concrete that it's a significant contributor to carbon dioxide emissions. I don't know of a better product to replace it. Wood construction, especially for mid-rise buildings, uses a lot of adhesives, and I don't know if that's really any better. There is a raging debate as to which is better for the environment. There's a trade-off between higher-density cities where you really focus on density in the core of the city, limiting sprawl of the city in the outlying areas. But then growing cities can eat up farmland and forests if they're allowed to sprawl without any limits. In some ways, higher density, compact cities with amenities in walking distance are healthier than having to jump in a car every time you need a carton of milk from the grocery store. In the case of our development projects, we include parkland in our developments. For example, our Colorado Springs project currently has about 250 acres that would be designated open space and possibly permanently donated to conservation through a conservation easement. But this property was a cattle ranch in an area where there's very little rainfall. There's not that many trees on the property. We would like to see a lot more trees added as part of the development plan. When we look at the life cycle of a building, energy efficiency is at the top of the list. And this is where you get some recurring benefit, not just within the construction. For a number of years, the construction industries focused on simply maximizing energy efficiency. That's given rise to standards like LEED, adding more insulation and making buildings airtight. But today, we're focused on making buildings healthier to live in, not just airtight. You definitely want to improve the energy conservation with higher R values, better air barriers, and more efficient air exchange with the outdoors. 
We're big believers in using materials that don't produce volatile gases and toxins. For example, we will not use closed cell foam insulation. This type of spray foam insulation gives some of the highest R values in a very small volume. You often see it being used in commercial buildings where they spray it directly on the inside of a steel roof. But we're philosophically opposed to using closed cell foam insulation. I believe that there will be a point in time when we're going to consider closed cell foam to be a banned product. I don't know that for sure, but that's just my prediction. We tend to use air barriers instead of just plastic vapor barriers. They sound similar, but they're different in terms of how they function and how they allow a building to remain healthier. Even in my own home, we're using geothermal heating, which uses about 80% less energy than heating with natural gas, oil, or electric baseboard heaters. The problem with geothermal is it takes up a lot of land. For a typical two-story home with a footprint of a couple thousand square feet, you're going to consume another 6,000 square feet of land for the geothermal. The other option is to go vertical and drill some wells. Many residential subdivisions simply don't have enough land to make a closed-loop geothermal system possible. Some apartment buildings can also be built with geothermal heating and air conditioning, but they have to use that open-loop system, which means drilling two wells. The groundwater is used as a thermal heat source from one well and then re-injected back into the ground through the second well. Even though you're not doing anything to the water apart from either adding or removing heat, depending on whether you're heating or air conditioning, some jurisdictions don't allow the injection wells because of the theoretical chance for contamination entering the groundwater. See, the question of environmental impact is a difficult one to answer. You can talk about indirect effects. You could buy a piece of steel for a window lintel. Maybe that piece of steel was made in Pittsburgh, or maybe it came from China, where they are using coal as the heat source. There's really no markings on it. It's steel, and it's covered in rust paint. Who's to know where it came from and how it was manufactured? Now, we have not yet installed solar panels on any of our projects, but we're actively running the numbers on it. The economics are starting to reach the point where it's looking compelling in some cases. And in that case, there's a long-term financial benefit and an environmental benefit. I want to thank you, Mike, for asking an important question, but frankly, it's one that's hard to answer fully in just five minutes. It's a very broad question, and there's so many possible avenues to explore. This is also a question for the listeners at home. What are you doing in your construction projects to minimize the environmental impact? As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.